if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to uh, John 17. John 17. As Jeff said, uh, we today are concluding a sermon series called The Politics of Jesus. And the big idea behind this sermon series is that we are living in a world uh, filled with political tension, political strife, political division. And when you really kind of peel back some of the layers uh, of the politics of the day, politics in and of itself is a fairly benign concept. It's, it's fairly harmless. Politics simply means uh, governance or decision-making. And so um, there's really, that's, it really is nothing more complicated than that. But the problem with politics, uh, it, it, beyond just the simple decision-making, is that all of us have opinions about uh, who's going to make the decisions. And at the heart of all politics is power. And we ask ourselves the question, who's in power? Who's in control? Who's making the decisions? And we oftentimes disagree. Um, and so that's where the strife and the tension and the stress of politics comes into all this. You know, if we're real, not careful, um, politics can seep into the life of the church. And it can cause division. Just as it causes division, uh, politics can cause division in our families. Have a great Thanksgiving this year, right? Might be a little bit tense for some of you. Politics can uh, creep into our communities and people can get at one another's throats. Politics uh, can creep in even into the life of the church. And it can become really uncomfortable, uh, even among people that we like to hang out with normally on Sunday morning. So we're talking a little bit about the politics of Jesus and the stresses that are going on in our lives today. You know, one of the things I love about Scripture is how relevant it is and how God's Word actually speaks to us today. Sometimes people say, well, the Bible, it's kind of outdated, it's old-fashioned, it's irrelevant, and I could not disagree more. Because Jesus lived in a world filled with politics and all the tension, all the stresses that you and I are dealing with today. He lived in a world filled with disease, much like we're dealing with a pandemic today. He lived in a world filled with the stress of economic hardship, like so many of us are today. Jesus lived in a world that was filled with relational problems, much like the racism uh, that continues to uh, engulf our, our country and our community. Jesus dealt with all sorts of stress in his day. He dealt with the political stress, and Jesus never... Um, uh, uh, walked away from the, the difficult conversations, the difficult politics of the day, but he stepped into it. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the powers of the day, and Jesus lived in a political pressure cooker. And so when the stress was at its greatest, Jesus decided to pray. And that's what John 17 is. It's a prayer that Jesus uh, prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for us. He prayed for the church. And so over the past few weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of this prayer. And so this morning, we're going to conclude uh, that prayer, and we're going to continue to look at ways in which Jesus is inviting us to look at the stress, the politics in our lives, and how we might uh, navigate through that. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your sanctuary this morning. God, we thank you for the breeze that is blowing, your very Holy Spirit moving and breathing among us. And God, though there is not, uh, there's many things we cannot do today, we can gather in your name to worship you and serve you. And so, Lord, as we prepare again to open your word and to reflect, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On June 16th, 1858, Congressman Abraham Lincoln stood at the state capitol down in Springfield, not far from here. He wanted to become a senator. He was looking for more power in Congress. And so he had just accepted the Republican uh, platform, the, the, the party's nod, and so he stood and he gave a speech. And the speech began this way. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Many of us know this speech. In fact, it's one of Abraham Lincoln's most famous speeches. Now, Lincoln would go on, and just a few months later, he would actually lose uh, to the incumbent senator, uh, Stephen Douglas. And so he had to continue on as a congressman. But a couple years later, two years later, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. Now, the thing about Lincoln's tenure as president of the United States, it was characterized by strife, by conflict, by division. It was characterized by four years of a brutal civil war that left over 800,000 Americans dead on the battlefields and lots died through disease and starvation. That was Lincoln's legacy of presiding over all that. And Lincoln never actually got to experience the peace that was brought about through that terrible conflict. Eight days after the surrender of the Confederacy and the last battle in Virginia, Lincoln was assassinated. That's Lincoln's legacy. He was the president of strife, the president of division, the man that fought so hard, and his candidacy for it to become a senator began with the words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Was Lincoln a prophet or what? But the truth is, those are not actually the words of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was quoting scripture. He was quoting the Bible. He was quoting the gospel of Mark chapter 3, verse 26, when Jesus is in the midst of a political hot storm and all the forces are coming against him. And Jesus said those words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus understood what it was like to live in the political pressure cooker. And he knew the importance of a house being united and standing together. Jesus understood what it was like over and over, time and time again, to live in a world of stress and politics. Jesus lived in the Roman, uh, in the Roman Empire. And if you don't know much about ancient history in the Roman Empire, it was this massive geographical uh, range of the Roman Empire. It was incredible military uh, 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 power. 
And it stretched not just from Rome or from Italy, but all the way through Spain, up through Germany, up towards the Danish border. It was this uh, France, this wide swath of Western Europe. But it also spread through Eastern Europe, through what was formerly Yugoslavia, all of Turkey. It also extended all through Northern Africa. It was this gigantic region of political power, and it extended all the way to the outer reaches of the Middle East over to what we know today as Israel and Palestine. Jesus lived in that world, and it was a world of political power and might and strength, but it was not, they didn't have elections. They didn't have polls. They didn't go and out to, and put their ballot in the box. It was a dictatorship, and it was run by the Caesars which also meant you got to pay tax and you, whether you liked it or not. And you had to pay a lot of tax because it cost a lot of money to uh, uh, take care of Pax Romana, all these military forces, to keep the peace of Rome and the Roman Empire. Nobody disputed with the Roman Empire. They were almighty, all-powerful. So that was the, the, the first major issue with the world in which Jesus lived, the powers in which he had to deal with. Even the Israelites, God's people, were essentially enslaved to the Roman Empire. And if that wasn't enough, there was another powerful uh, uh, power of the day. It was the temple. It was the Jewish leaders. And they didn't have all the military might like Rome did, but they had 2,000 years of tradition. Can you imagine? We've had a little bit of tradition in the life of our church here at Faith Lutheran. We can get a little bit entrenched in our tradition, right? Can you imagine 2,000 years of tradition with all these rules and regulations saying, this is how you got to do it. You got to do it this way. You can't do it that way. And so Jesus would go toe-to-toe with these religious leaders, with the temple, the powers of the day, the religious leaders. And they had the power of the people. Everybody feared the Romans because of their military power, but the power of the people, the Jewish people, they followed the power of the temple. And Jesus walked onto the stage and he dove straight into the politics and straight into the stress. And on the last week of his life, he comes into the center of all the political strife into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple and he riles up the religious people one more time, turns over the tables and calls the money changers thieves because you got to get the religious people really upset. And then by Thursday, they're ready to share in the Passover meal. He looks at his disciples. He washes their feet. He serves them. He begins to teach them one final teaching about how they are to love one another and to serve in the world. And then after all that's finished, he looks at his disciples, his friends, and says, let us pray. Let us pray. And in John 17, Jesus first prays for himself. He prays, God, may what's about ready to happen, may this bring you honor and glory. Jesus doesn't pray that uh, he doesn't suffer. He doesn't pray for comfort. He doesn't pray for peace. He says, what's about ready to, what's going to happen next, may this bring you glory, Father, so that the world may know that you are King and God and that you are on the throne. And then last week, the second part of John 17, the high priestly prayer, 
Jesus prays for his disciples, and he prays that they would be obedient to God's word. He doesn't pray for comfort. He doesn't pray for happiness. He doesn't pray for everything to go well with them. He says, keep them obedient in God's word so that the world may know God is on the throne and God is still in control. And this morning, we're going to look at the third part of Jesus' prayer in John 17. John 17, beginning with verse 20, if you've got your Bibles this morning. Jesus continues his prayer. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that, one, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me, given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I have known you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. At the end of Jesus' life, he could have prayed for anything for us. He could have prayed for the future church that they would be uh, prosperous and wealthy. He could have prayed for the future church that we'd be comfortable. He could have prayed for the future church that we'd be happy. He could have prayed for the future church that we would be healthy and strong. But Jesus doesn't pray for any of those things for us. He prays that we would be unified. He prays that we would be one. Jesus knew that after he was going to die on a cross, that a great persecution was going to come over the church. And of course it did. And he knew all sorts of terrible things would happen to the early Christians and throughout church history, to Christians in general, even us today and the hardships of what it means to be a Jesus follower. And Jesus, one prayer for us, is that we would be one. In fact, in these uh, seven verses here, three times Jesus says, he prays for our unity. Verse 21, that all of them may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. And verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus makes it very clear what he's praying for for us, for unity for oneness, to stick together. Why does Jesus pray for us, for the church, for you and me, that we would stick together through all the hardships, through all the stress in the world? He tells us again three times. Verse 21, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. And verse 26, to make you known. You know, one of the things I love about this prayer is Jesus is praying for us and for the entire church. 
is that he is praying for our unity, but our unity is not about our unity. Our unity is about a testimony to the world. So we stay and call to, to, to be unified as a church, to love one another and to care for one another. And those are good things, right? But, that, but we are not the end goal of what Jesus' prayer. Jesus says, I have something so much bigger, so much greater for your unification. It's so that you can be a testimony to the world, that you can be a witness to the world. So I, I like getting along with you all. That's a wonderful thing for sure. But what's even more important is that we are unified. That we celebrate our unity in Christ as a witness, as a testimony to the world. Now I want to be very clear this morning uh, about what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. I think about uh, young men and women who enlist in the armed forces. They go into the armed forces. They all get the same haircut. They all wear the same clothes. They learn to talk the same way. They learn to go out on the same mission. And by the time they've graduated from boot camp, they look the same, they talk the same, they behave the same, and they have a mission that they're going to be about. That's uniformity. But in the life of the church, that's not us. We celebrate diversity. We celebrate differences. We celebrate one another's gifts and passions. This is why this summer, I know so many of you came uh, to worship uh, for our Enneagram sermon series. We talked about those nine different personality types. And we looked at those nine very different people from the New Testament and we studied their lives. And I don't know about you, but I came to the conclusion week after week, man, God really used some very, very different people to do some extraordinary work in the life of the church. And so here at Faith Lutheran, we celebrate our differences. We celebrate our differences, our, our diversity. You don't want me leading music on Sunday morning. That would be a disaster. You want somebody who's different than me. You don't want me in charge of the church finances. I can't work in a spreadsheet. Just ask Carolyn. I have to email her all the time. Carolyn, what do I do? You want somebody who's got gifts and passions in that area. You don't want me in charge of benevolence. I'd just give all our money away. We'd be in trouble. I'd be up here every week and we're out of money again. See, this is what the council does. We've got a, a leadership team that oversees our benevolence funds. You don't want me in charge of our technology. We would not have a website. We would not have email. We wouldn't have anything. You wouldn't hear me on a microphone this morning. I don't know anything about technology. See, I lean heavily on people, you, in the life of the church. Our diversity, our different skill set. This morning as we were getting set up, somebody asked me, uh, Mary Jane asked me about the communion elements. And I said, Mary Jane, I don't know. I don't know how this stuff gets set up. I mean, there's so many things I don't know about in the life of the church. Because many of you just kind of step up and step into ministry because you've got a call, you've got passion, you've got skill to just step out and, and you just do it. I just show up on Sunday morning and I preach and I pray. It's awesome. I don't have to do it all. Praise God, because we are not a uniform church. 
That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is also not talking about, when he talks about uh, uh, unity, that we need to be unanimous in our decision-making. We don't have to be unanimous in our decision-making. Now, we do need to be unanimous in the core teachings of the Christian faith. Those core teachings are found in the Apostles' Creed, among the other creeds. We have to all agree, and if you're a partner of Faith Lutheran Church, you even signed on the dotted line that you agree to those things. Because we have to agree on a core group of ideas. There are many things that we can agree to disagree on in the life of the church. This was one of the issues, and and theologians and pastors, we love to study scripture and and just kind of look, tear it apart, and, and look at all these little ideas and concepts, and we can get, frankly, distracted in the life of some of the smallest minutia in the life of the church, and this is one of the things that drove Martin Luther crazy. Because these pastors, these theologians, they were all really smart and they'd have these big old arguments about nonsense, about little issues that truly did not matter in the life of the church. And there's this Greek term called adiaphora. And adiaphora simply means it doesn't matter. It's non-essential. And so they would get into the, a heated argument. They would argue sometimes how many angels could fit on the tip of a, a needle. Hello, why does that even matter? But they would have these big, long debates about how many angels could stand on the head of a needle. And Luther would say, adiaphora, guys, don't sweat it. Knock it off. We can agree to disagree. Because unity does not mean we have to be unanimous in all the details of the life of the church. That is not what Jesus is talking about. And the third and last thing, that I want to lift up this morning, is that unity is not unification. Unity is not unification. You know, we live in a diverse world, in a diverse church. We don't have to agree with all the other denominations out there on all the particulars of the faith. In fact, you maybe some of you don't even know this, but we are supporting a church plant in Decatur, and it's a Baptist church plant. Baptists practice differently than Lutherans. It's okay, folks. We don't mind because we don't believe that we need to be uh, have this this unification with all the churches out there. It's why in just a few moments, when we stand to proclaim our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed, we're going to say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic being a small c. It's not the the, the capital c as in the denomination, as in the church organizational body of the, the Roman Catholic Church. We believe in the small c Catholic Church. Small c Catholic means the unified, the one church. We are an ecumenical body. We worship and celebrate alongside 30,000 denominations around the world. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, in the Protestant churches, in the independent churches, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ if they agree to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. 
We don't all have to have the same governance structure. We don't have to have all the same ways of, of doing church. We can look at one another and say, you do it the way that you're comfortable with. We're going to do it the way we're comfortable with, with it from a governance standpoint. But we're going to agree on the core teachings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about unity. I think he's talking about unity and relationship. Unity and relationship. Jesus prays in this prayer about his relationship with his heavenly father. He says, God, you and I are one in relationship. I've been in relationship with my people. Make them one in relationship with one another, just as you and I are in relationship. I think Jesus is calling us to be in relationship with one another. And I know that's really difficult because we're different from one another. We have different opinions, different ideas, disagreements over different things. And time and time again, Jesus calls us to love one another. And that love, it looks like sacrifice, a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of money, a sacrifice of convenience. Love over and over for Jesus as defined as going after and pursuing those who are different than you, especially people who are different than you. And he says, don't just do that so that you'll be, all be one big community, but do it so that you may be a witness to the world. Our unity in our relationship, it's not about us. That's a wonderful byproduct that we tried really hard to get along together. But ultimately, Jesus' prayer for us in our unity is the prayer that he had for his disciples and for himself, so that the world may know. You know, I'm reminded uh, that the church is never more than one generation from going extinct. Think about that. The church is never more than one generation from going extinct which means we always have to be sharing the faith of Jesus Christ with those in our community, in the world, with future generations. Because if we are not bearing witness and testimony to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, the church will cease to exist in one generation. And so my challenge for all of us this morning is that we would pray for unity. Unity in the body of Christ Unity with, with one, one another here at Faith Lutheran. Unity with the church, uh, the larger church. Unity with the global church. You know, this unity is one of the reasons why uh, we celebrate Holy Communion every Sunday morning. We gather together around the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This sacrament, communion. It, in the heart of the word of communion is union. And we celebrate our oneness in Christ. It reminds us this meal of the last week of Jesus' life and how the tension, the stress, all the political pressures of the world were caving in on Jesus. And he prays for our union that we would stay together so that we can be a witness and a testimony into the world. 
See, we don't have any kind of uh, guidelines around who can take communion and who can't. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome at the table of communion here at Faith Lutheran Church. And oftentimes when I bring communion to our homebound folks, you know, they don't get out much by definition, right? So as I share communion with them and after they've received communion, I remind them that that not only proclaims the forgiveness of sin, but it also binds them with the church, the global church, the church at Faith Lutheran Church, that they're not just out there on their own, but they're part of something so much bigger than themselves. Oftentimes we think of the church as uh, just me and Jesus. We come here on Sunday morning, it's what did I get out of church and what did I think of church? But communion says church is not about you, it's about us so that we can go out and impact into the world. I think communion is absolutely one of the most important things we do on Sunday morning. You could come to worship on Sunday morning and the music may not speak to you. You could come to worship on Sunday morning and the prayers would be like, ah, that's fine. You could come to worship on Sunday morning and the sermon most Sundays is going to be probably completely incoherent. And you're like, I have no idea what that guy was talking about. But when you come on Sunday morning to receive Holy Communion, Jesus is reminding you that you are part of the body of Christ. You are not alone in this world on your own. That You are part of something so much greater, so much bigger, something so much more powerful. And he calls us all to go out to share that good news with the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the midst of great strife, great stress, great struggle, great pressure, great division, great brokenness in the world, that you meet us. God, you meet us in our prayer. You meet us in your word. You meet us in our worship. And you meet us in the church. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would indeed be a united church in the midst of all of our stress. And God, just that we could celebrate and enjoy one another, but more importantly, so that we can bear witness, bear testimony to your saving grace, your saving love to a world that desperately needs your healing power. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.